Hey everybody, welcome to this new series called What I'm Reading. So basically what I wanted to do with this series is talk about something other than multifamily real estate. Because after creating this massive multifamily fire course that I created over the last about nine to 10 months, I consolidated all the information I've ever learned on multifamily real estate. And I just found myself super burnt out about talking about multifamily after that. I basically condensed all the knowledge I'd ever learned over the course of many years into one standalone course, which you can find more information about if you want in the description, but I'm not really pitching that right now. I'm just trying to tell you the story of the fact that I really can't bring myself to talk about multifamily real estate anymore. It's uh, it's it's a little bit brutal, so I'm trying to take a couple months off um, from that, but I realize I'm excited about a bunch of other things right now. Uh, I read every single day, and I read some really great books, so I want to do a series called One I'm Reading, where I just talk to you guys about the book or books that I'm currently reading. And right now, I want to talk about this really cool book that I'm actually sure no one's read. It's a really niche book, so I think it'll be exciting. It's called The Structure of Magic. It's got a really cool, I mean, look at how cool that, I mean, just alone the cover. You know, they, they say don't judge a book by its cover, but it's a pretty cool cover. So basically what this book's about uh, the main idea works with this analogy of a magician. So as you saw, there's a wizard on the front, and it's called the structure of magic. And so what the analogy is, is if you go and you see a magician work or like a card trick guy, you think he's doing magic, but really you're not understanding behind the scenes. He has a structure to what he's doing. So he's not actually doing magic. He just has a technique and a structure behind the scenes that you're not aware of. So it comes and looks like he's doing magic. And so the analogy relates to high-level therapists like, for example, Tony Robbins. The guys who wrote this book trained Tony Robbins, uh, the motivational speaker, the guy who makes people get over their phobias in two minutes. So it seems like when he does those things, when he makes someone who's been scared of snakes for 30 years get over it in two minutes, it seems like he's doing magic, like he's a sorcerer. But really, he has a structure to what he's doing, and it's a linguistic structure, and this book breaks down that structure. So it starts to talk about how you can actually understand the way that you're perceiving the world and the way that other people are and help them to have breakthroughs, help yourself to have breakthroughs. So that's essentially uh, the main point or the main uh, issue that it's working with in this book. That's the first thing to really understand. Once we get that point across, we can kind of move on, which is that you are not experiencing reality as it totally is. You have a map or a model of it in your mind that you create based on a couple of constraints. And we'll get into those constraints in a second here. So number one would be the neurological constraints. And that just goes down to the limits of our brain and our processing power as a human, right? So as I said, um, you can actually only hear sound from 20 cycles to 20,000 cycles. We can't hear below or, or above that, yet those cycles definitely exist. The second way that we're constrained is by social constraints. So for example, if you speak English, you have eight predominant colors on the color wheel, whereas there's some native language where they only have three predominant colors. So they're actually having a much smaller range of experience or they're able to describe it and therefore perceive it in a much more limited way because they only have three words for most colors and then we have eight words based on the color wheel in English. And then there's also examples I've seen Tony Robbins give of Eskimos or people who live um, very far in north and have a lot of snow around them. They have hundreds of words for snow, whereas in English we only have really one, you know, snow, maybe slush, ice, icicle. You know, we have like limited ways to describe snow because we're not really engulfed in it all the time. But Eskimos have thousands of words to describe it. So their experience of reality is much more vast because they're able to uh, communicate it and understand it and process it in their mind better because of their social uh, constraints. So we're actually more constrained on the topic of snow than an Eskimo would be. And, you know, English people are less constrained than some native tribes that only have three words for certain color types. And we have eight 
for the main color categories. So that's just another way that you're limited socially. The last way that we're limited is the individual constraints. So there's tons of things that we can go in here, but I'll just give a simple example of, we have different perceptions of different things as people. So for example, I grew up in Austin, Texas. So my individual idea of Austin is different than yours if you're not from here. Or also if you are from here, but you're from a different area of Austin, you probably have a much different viewpoint than I do. For example, if you were in a lower income area of Austin and I was in a middle income area of Austin, then we would have different experiences of how Austin is to us based on our experiences. We have individual constraints, we have social constraints, and we have neurological constraints. So these are the three things that make it to where we have to create a model or a map of reality. We can't experience reality directly because of these three things. So we start to create a model and a map. So the next step is now that we've established that you have a model and a map of the world, we want to understand how to use that map and how to use that model and understand where the ends are and understand how to make those ends bigger to encompass more options. Because essentially the main uh, actionable point of the book is that if we understand our map, then we understand that we're making the best decisions we can in every moment based on the map. So when someone makes a decision that to you seems ridiculous and stupid and short-sighted, they're making the best possible decision that they can based on the model of the world that they have in their head. So if you can understand what their model of the world is, then you can understand how they got to their decision. And you can also see in the future how to change their model of the world so that they can have more options basically when they come to that situation in the future. And so for me reading this book, it's really valuable because you know, sometimes in business or just in life or relationships, we make decisions that don't seem that smart. And it's not because we're stupid people necessarily. It can be, I mean, it can be because of that sometimes, but most of the time it's because your map of the world or your model is just simply, it's limited, right? You don't have access to very many options because of your viewpoint, because of your perception on the reality around you. Whereas basically what they say in the book is that the more successful people in the world, they have just a richer model, a, a model with more options for each moment. So they see moments, they literally interpret reality differently than you or I. They see the, the situation they're in as richer with more options. Um, and there's ways to actually, once you understand your model, change it. Um, and so that's just a really interesting part. And that's what we're going to move into here in this next step of the video. So our models limit us, as I've said, right? We make the best decisions we can based on our models. And the three ways that we actually limit our things, like the actual mechanisms that limit them are generalization, deletion, and distortion. So generalization would be saying, uh, let's say if you were a kid and you were in a rocking chair and you're rocking back and forth and you fall to the chair, you hit your head. You can have a couple different ways to perceive that event, right? You can say rocking chairs specifically are dangerous. That would be more specific. That would be good. That would be less of a generalization, but you could generalize and say all chairs are dangerous. So let's say in this example, if you are that kid who says all chairs are dangerous rather than rocking chairs are dangerous and being specific about your experience, then that generalization of saying all chairs are dangerous is going to limit the amount of options you have when you walk into a room, right? Because now you think all chairs are dangerous. So you're going to, in this theoretical and improbable situation, you are going to sit in less chairs. You're going to just have a more limited option range when you go into rooms because you're not going to want to sit in chairs. You're going to be nervous of them in some form or fashion. Whereas if you're specific about the experience that happened with your language and you don't generalize in your mind and in your model, then you can say, I'm just going to try to avoid rocking chairs. And the more specific that we can get with our experience and the less generalizing we can do, the more options we're going to have. So for example, if you say rocking chairs that are cracked in the seat or have a low seat back, those are dangerous, right? If they have a higher seat back and I can actually lean back farther, then they're less dangerous. So then you can get more specific and you say, okay, it's not chairs, it's not rocking chairs, it's rocking chairs that have a crack in the seat and are lower 
um, as far as the back of the chair so that you can tip over the back of the chair. So now you would be more specific, you would be less generalized and you would have more options because you would know, okay, I can still sit in rocking chairs and I can still sit in most rocking chairs. I just can't sit in this specific kind of rocking chair. So that's how, that's a very simplified example of how we start to limit our reality based on the way that we perceive events around us. And we start to create this model or map of the world based on just experiences that we have and then how we reconcile those experiences. So if we can start to be aware of this generalization that we do in our minds, then we can actually broaden it, be less general and have more options and situations. Uh, the next way that we limit our experience would be deletion. So deletion would be a great example of this is if you're in a noisy restaurant, but you're having a conversation with someone, you end up blocking out all of the noise around you um, and you're just hearing the person's voice across from you. So we delete certain events that happen to us in our lives. There's so many things that happen um, in a moment to moment basis that you're actually, you're just not even hearing. So a lot of times when people get in arguments or there's a disagreement in conversation, it's a lot of the times just because your model of the world doesn't fit with what they're saying. So your brain just basically deletes it um, or in the next example, distorts it. So it's, it's very difficult um, if you don't understand your model to, to have these interpersonal um, relationships that are complicated. Because if you don't realize that your model is limited and that you're deleting some of the words they're saying because it doesn't compute with your view of reality, then you're going to get in a ton of arguments. So that's why it's really important to understand this model and your model specifically so that you can kind of be aware of the things that you delete um, as much as you can be at least. So the last view that I alluded to uh, previously was distortion. So again, if you're in a conversation with people, um, oftentimes you can distort what they've said so as not to disturb your model or map of the world. There's a lot of different things that you can do in that way. Um, and that's, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the political turmoil that we're having currently comes a lot from distortion, right? You simply don't want to hear a point of view that disrupts your model of the world. So it's very difficult for you to um, actually take that in. And then you end up just being argumentative because you don't really see where they're coming from because you're distorting. So it's important to understand where your beliefs are, where your model is, and then know when you're distorting things and hopefully take a step back. And you don't necessarily have to accept a view that's contrary to yours if you've done a lot of thinking on it, but at least hearing it um, and consolidating it, reconciling it, and then coming up with a counterpoint rather than just distorting the whole thing generally. But it is a part of our human experience. So it's difficult and totally understandable. Maybe that can help everyone to have a little bit of compassion for the current uh, landscape that we're in because people are just distorting and deleting and generalizing, right? That's that's what we do. So the more aware that you can, you and I can be about it, maybe the less that we can be involved in those kind of conversations. So yeah, we've established the limits. Now let's establish how to change it because I've given you kind of the groundwork, but I want to talk about how to actually change it. So the way that we can start to understand how to change this model is by looking at our language and the linguistic structure of our language. And the reason that looking at a language is important is because we actually represent our representation with language. So for example, we have the reality right here that's fixed and this is reality. Then we have a representation of reality. But then once we want to communicate this representation and figure out what it actually is, we have to communicate it with language. So the same process that came from here's reality, here's how I'm representing it. The same mechanisms we use to get from reality to our representation is the same mechanisms we're going to use to get from our representation to actually representing it to someone else speaking it. So if we're using generalization um, from here to here and we're using deletion in certain areas, we're also going to use deletion in the way that we speak about our model. So if we can start to understand how we speak, we can actually go back a step and see how we're actually, what mistakes we're making from reality right to our model. So that's kind of the main thing. And, and the way that they break it down in the book mainly is this concept of a deep structure and a surface structure of speaking. So an example of someone who is generalizing um, an, an issue that they're having would be 
they would represent their surface structure only and not their deep structure. So an example of a surface structure would be um, Mary bought a car, right? That's surface structure. The deep structure is what that surface structure implies. So if Mary bought a car, the deep structure of that would be that Mary bought a car from someone from somewhere, right? So you, you have an implication based on that surface structure. So they're telling you kind of the surface of the situation, but you as a native English speaker understand that that car must have come from someone and from somewhere. If we can start to see the deep structure behind the things that we're saying, then we can actually start to see where our model is. And you can actually take these topics and use them in regular life. You don't necessarily have to be uh, a therapist or someone in therapy, but you just have to understand how your model of the world works. I mean, Tony Robbins read this book um, and actually studied with these two guys who wrote the book and became you know, the expert that he is now. So it's just a really functional way to kind of change the way that you're modeling the world and understanding that if there is a model, then we can change it. And looking at our language is a really important way to do so. So that's really all I can explain, but hopefully this is enough for you to actually go and pick up the book and read it. So again, the book is called uh, The Structure of Magic. It really breaks down the linguistic structure that I've kind of hinted at, and I know that it might be confusing for you having not read the book, but I really encourage that you read the book. There's thousands of examples of conversations between a client and a therapist and how they're actually breaking down what this person's saying on a surface level and getting to the deeper, the deeper structure below that they're not talking about and actually then starting to understand where their model is and then working on how to change it. But just understand that number one, we do have a model and then we represent that model with language. And the key to understanding the model is understanding how we use language. So if we can understand those things, then we can start to change the way we perceive the events around us. We can have richer, fuller options and we can make better decisions and change our lives altogether.